Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. We have episode number 120 today, Denisovan Origins and Gobekli Tepe with Andrew Collins. Andrew Collins is a science and history writer. He's the author of over 15 books with such titles as From the Ashes of Angels, Gateway to Atlantis, Gods of Eden, The Cygnus Mystery, The Cygnus Key, and uh, he wrote Gobekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods. And in 2008, Andrew and an Egyptological researcher uh, discovered a previously unrecorded cave system beneath the Great Pyramid of Giza. The caverns are now known as Collins Cave. Uh, The story is told in his book, Beneath the Pyramids, in 2009. His latest book is Denisovan Origins, in which he co-authored with Dr. Gregory Little. Check out Andrew's website at andrewcollins.com and check out his books on amazon.com. I have both of those links below the video. Also, check us out at Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content and interviews. Um, I'm going to be uploading a 10 to 15 minute uh, continuation of this episode exclusively for our patrons. Um, I believe we will be talking about uh, aliens and UFOs and possibly ultra terrestrials. And um, thanks for coming on, Andrew. We really appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Um, yes, obviously looking forward to some, uh, stimulating conversation. (laughs) Beautiful. Uh, so I want to start off with what was the writing process like? Cause if, when you co-author a book, um, I'm sure you have your own ideas on things and I'm sure Dr. Gregory had his own ideas on things, although he's been focused in his previous research on ancient native America and you've been a little bit more fake, uh, f- uh, focused on ancient Mesopotamia and the area of like Anatolia in Turkey. Um, so what was, when you guys went in, did you guys just talk about a, uh, specific, you know, blueprint or did you just go at it and then kind of piece it together? Uh, well, Greg and I have been working together since the two thousands. Uh, I've gone over to the States on several occasions or more, uh, looking at different mound complexes uh, and trying to understand their origins. Um, and at many of them, there are accounts of the discovery of oversized skeletons, generally seven to seven and a half feet tall. Uh, and little by little, we began to realize that the elite or the leadership of various of the uh, so-called Adena uh, people uh, complexes seem to have been in the hands of oversized individuals who were not simply uh, suffering from you know gigantism you know uh, some kind of uh, genetic abnormality but that there had actually been a distinctive group existing in North America uh, probably from a very early period, you know, maybe at least three to 4,000 years uh, BC through to the time of first contact. And we wondered who they were. Um, and then in 2010, uh, the Denisovans, uh, that's the correct pronunciation, 
came onto the scene when a finger bone that was discovered in the famous Denisova cave in Siberia was analysed and found to belong to an extinct human lineage. Um, this lineage was also found to have interbred with many modern-day populations, particularly in southern, eastern and southeastern Asia. Um, but that they'd also reached the Americas, or certainly their hybrid descendants had, because DNA belonging to the Denisovans has been found in various tribes, particularly in the north, uh, around the Great Lakes area, um, the Ojibwa and the Cree, for instance. And we began to wonder whether there was a relationship between the Denisovans and these giants that seem to be in charge of the Adena culture. Um, and we threw around this idea based on the fact that a lot of the very meagre anatomical evidence uh, and fossil remains of Denisovans coming out seem to be oversized. I mean, for instance, they had very large teeth. I mean, so huge that they were double the size of those of uh, modern, modern humans, anatomical modern humans. Um, plus the skull was very thick and robust. Um, and the people that were examining these fossils, uh, particularly those of the Max Planck Institute of Germany, who did the, the sequencing, the, the genome sequencing on this finger bone, um, you know, were making waves suggesting that the Denisovans were incredibly tall, uh, well, I want to say totally called very large, very large in stature. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk, um, you know, within my books and uh, elsewhere now and in some TV shows that the Denisovans may well have been of extraordinary size and height. Now, um, I believe this is going to turn out to be the case. Um, but it's still up in the air at the moment. We need to find uh, a full cranium, you know, skull of a Denisovan, which hasn't been found yet. We need to find a femur bone, a leg, because this will be used to estimate the full size of a Denisovan. But I get the feeling that you're not talking about small people here. You are talking about quite large individuals that were comparable to the largest wrestlers that you know that take part in wwe today mm -hmm. and um i think if we you know if you get that image into your head that we're dealing with very big individuals i think that there's every reason to connect them therefore with the giants um and the giant skeletons uh, of north america where also you have hundreds of different legends to do with giants existing there in the past and we're not talking about Bigfoot here. We're talking about mm -hmm. groups of human-like individuals who would often rival the local, original Native American tribes of the, of the area. Um, in some cases, they were seen to be incredibly intelligent. Others, um, you know, almost cannibals, basically. Um, and I think there's a link here with, with, with the Denisovans. That's... That, and that's what brought us together really on this project. But it began earlier in 2014 when Greg wrote a book called The Path of Souls, mm -hmm. uh, which we'll come on to, you know, why it's called that shortly. 
but I mean, I contributed to that. I mean, I did the, the, the introduction or the forward and I also did an afterward for it as well. Uh, I would like to have contributed more, but unfortunately, you know, time was quite tired uh, then. Um, and this introduced the Denisovans and the fact that they were possibly of large size. And we wanted to follow this up with more research and do a more fuller book. And Denisovan Origins was the answer. And that came out towards the end of last year. Yeah. And, and it's, <laughs> I struggle with that because I have... Uh... Denisovan built into my uh, vernacular, uh, yeah. so it's, it's tough getting it to uh, Denisovan. Well, it's like tomato, I know, tomato. Isn't yeah, it really? I suppose it doesn't really matter. Doctor Greg really pointed that out when we had him on too. So I, you know, it's 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 going to take a while for me to break out. But yeah. um, you are actually the person that introduced me to Gobekli Tepe um, via Ancient Aliens. Uh, I'm probably one of the earlier years uh, uh, that the show was on. And what has it been out for 10 years now or something like that? Um, so I had no idea what Gobekli Tepe was. We were never taught about it in school. Um, and we graduated in uh, the early 2000s. And it was discovered in, uh, what, 95 or the early 90s by Klaus Schmidt. Um, so you were actually the catalyst for us starting to learn about all this stuff in terms of nobody was really talking about it. And you know a ton about the... the uh, the site and I've seen videos with you walking Graham Hancock and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Hugh Newman through there. And um, how, what, how does that, how does Gobekli uh, Tepe correlate into this timeline or this uh, Denisovan origins? Well, um, I mean, the Gobekli Tepe was discovered in 1995, if I remember rightly, maybe 94. Mm -hmm. Uh, by Klaus Schmidt, um, and it was just this huge occupational mound on the top of a r mountain ridge uh, in southeast Turkey, uh, and he saw um, evidence of carved stones there, which he recognised immediately as being at least ten thousand years old. Um, so he brought in the excavators, and they started uncovering these most extraordinary stone structures with beautiful carvings of animals. Uh, many of them were T-shaped, um, the T capital on the top of the stones being the heads, the abstract heads of the individuals that, that are depicted by the stones. Mm. And in relief, you've actually got arms and hands on them. You've, some of them wear belts. Some of them are clearly wearing uh, draped clothes, um, you know, medallions around their neck, uh, things like this. And all of this was created not just 10,000 years ago, but the earliest structures there are 9,500 BC. So that's 11,500 years ago. Um, and I mean, it's almost like if you transported Stonehenge onto a mountaintop in southeast Turkey and then multiplied it by at least 20 times, that's what Gebekli Tepe is. Mm. Um, and yet it's, you know, it's, it's several thousand years older than Stonehenge, several thousand years older than most of the megalithic complexes of Europe. So who built it? And I looked at this in, in an earlier book, which was uh, Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods. Having been there, by the way, yeah, many occasions up to that point. I mean, I first went there as early as 2004. 
um, which was four years after its existence was made known to the general public in a German uh, magazine. Before that time, nobody knew anything about it. And I eventually concluded that the people behind its construction almost certainly were not local. I mean, the people that built it were the locals, no question about that. They were a local hunter-gatherer people that were brought together by some kind of um, group who I think came into the area, brought together the locals and said, look, this is what we want you to do. And the reason why they wanted them to do this is because this was immediately following a massive comet impact that had devastated the world. What we now know as the Younger Dryas um, mm -hmm. impact mm -hmm. event. And this took place, although it took place around 10,800 BC, which seems like a long time before Gebekli Tepe, the fact of the matter is there were reverberations of wildfires, floods, and a, uh, a mini ice age lasting 1,200 years that followed in the wake of this impact. And all of that did not end until around 9,600 BC. And that's exactly when Gebekli Tepe was constructed. It's my opinion, and I've written this in various books, including, again, in Denisovan Origins, that the people involved in the construction were still in fear that another cataclysm would take place. They were suffering from what visionary writer Barbara Han Clough refers to as catastrophobia. You know, the fear of further catastrophe taking place. Mm. Every time a comet appears in the skies, you know, they would look at it and think, oh my God, you know, it's another bad omen, you know, is the world about to end again? Or, you know, for proper this time. Um, and you also have to look at it from how they would have perceived these comets appearing in the sky. They would have seen them as supernatural creatures, the tales of supernatural creatures, most obviously canines, uh, wolves, foxes, things like this. Because all over the world, different cultures have perceived comets and the destruction that seems to be associated with them in terms of large canine-like creatures, the most obvious one, for instance, being Fenris, the, the, the great wolf of mm. Norse tradition. Um, it was Ignatius Donnelly in 1884 in a book called um, Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Ice, mm. that talked about the possibility that Fenris was a memory of a comet that brought destruction to the world, um, you know, sometime during the last ice age. And I think he's absolutely totally correct. I've written about this in my books and all around the world, even at the time of first contact with the, the Mayan cultures in America, um, there is a account of a Jesuit priest, a wandering Jesuit priest, uh, going into a village at the same time that a comet appeared in the sky and the people being in fear that some kind of cataclysm was going to take place. And the priests and shamans came out and did a ritual wearing uh, the tails of a of fox, like a fox pelt with tails. Now, this is exactly what we see on a couple of the stones at Gebekli Tepe, these fox pelt loincloths. Um, and on, above one of them, and this is the most, uh, you know, sorry, the largest of the stones, uh, pillar 18 in enclosure D, you have above that fox pelt loincloth 
um, of a belt buckle, quite literally, mm-hmm. because the guy's wearing a belt. And th- this belt buckle has what I would interpret as a three-pronged comet. And often comets, when they come into the sky, have three tails. Uh, and I think that's exactly what's being depicted here. And that the actual figure represented by this particular T-shaped stone is what I would call a comet shaman, the p- a person who would be able to deal with the supernatural creatures that were seen to be responsible for these cataclysms. And I think that's the reason why these, this elite group was able to come in and literally take control of the local communities to get them to build these monuments um, so that they acted as interfaces liminal realms linking the physical world with the sky world or the you know the you know the afterlife quite literally you know and that the shamans would be able to project their minds into this sky world to be able to deal with these supernatural creatures to ensure that the world did not come to an end um but then who were these people well all the evidence that i put together seems to suggest they came from the north um that they probably came via the Caucasus region from mm-hmm. the Russian steppe. Um, and that they probably before that had come from as far east as the Ural mountains that divide Europe from Asia. Um, and even beyond that into Siberia. Uh, now this is what I'd worked out, you know, years ago, but then to find that the Denisovans who it would appear had had, an incredibly um, uh, advanced mindset producing beautiful jewelry, the first bone needles to create tailored clothing, the first musical instruments, uh, the first symbolic art, which seems to have knowledge of celestial cycles, um, uh, incredibly advanced stone toolkits, which were later adopted by our own ancestors and used throughout the Paleolithic period down to the time of Quebec and Tepe and beyond. Um, all of these tended to suggest to me that the that our ancestors gained the knowledge of technology and cosmology and culture from something that pre-existed in the area of Siberia and the Ural Mountains mm-hmm. at a much earlier date. Um, and that they then moved into different parts of the ancient world, eastwards into China, southeastwards, you know, into places like Cambodia, Thailand, south into India, but west into Europe and Southwest Asia, and came to bear on the existing cultures. And that the flowering of this created, certainly in Southwest Asia, the the you know the 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 cradle of civilization itself with places like Quebec Tepe, and I'm not the only person saying this. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there are scholars coming out and showing the links between Quebec Tepe and cultures that existed in the Ural Mountains just prior to the building of Quebec Tepe. Same type of carvings, same type of stone tool technologies, the same footprint basically. So I think. Essentially, we're on the right track here. So this is a perfect segue into something. So on our podcast, we talk a lot about ancient civilizations, psychedelics, ancient knowledge, that kind of stuff. Um, 
now I'm not saying psychedelics were involved, but you mentioned, um, you know, the Siber- ancient Siberians and the Denisovan cave in Siberia. Now, I'm sure you know that within the indigenous Siberian population now, there's a practice with uh, Amanita muscaria and psycho, um, psychoactive entheogenic plants. Uh, so do you think that was involved in any way with the development of these civilizations? Uh, possibly, you know, you mentioned comet shamanism, which we can get back into in a second. You know, I want to bring up the vulture stone and stuff, but um, do you think that there's a connection there or do you think it was purely based on some of these cataclysmic events kind of changing their consciousness or what do you think was happening with that? Well, I think that psychedelics was involved massively. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly there is evidence that the Denisovans would, that in the Denisov cave, what they have found is the pollen, I think I seem to recall, of one of the strains of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it doesn't tell us that they were smoking it or doing anything in particular with it. But There was an article that, that did suggest, there. though, that cannabis had been cultivated by early um, and pre-human uh, yeah, yeah. You know, populations. Okay. Right. Now, the reason for this is because a jawbone belonging to a Denisovan, which actually you know, dates to about 160,000 years ago, was discovered in northwest China um, by a large lake. Um, I think it's called the Kingai Lake. Excuse my pronunciations. Um, And in this area, it would seem that the earliest strains of cannabis uh, were also grown in the past. Um, so the, our oldest knowledge of cannabis comes from the very same area. So here you have two circumstantial pieces of evidence to suggest that the Denisovans uh, may have had an interest in cannabis. That's the only thing that we've got linking them directly with psychoactive drugs at this time. Mm-hmm. However, um, as I wrote in my the first book that was all about you know Gobekli Tepe and you know the cosmology and what was going on there, which was a book called The Cygnus Mystery, which came right. out in two thousand and six. Is that I I show that there is a large amount of symbolism in the carvings of the stones that is strongly suggestive of psychoactive drug use, particularly the fact that many of them are covered in multiple snakes. Um, and um, from what I understand, I've never done ayahuasca, but from those that have, is that one of the most obvious symbols that you will see during um, an altered state involving ayahuasca is snakes crawling around doors, up posts, everything. Rainbow um, serpent. And, yeah. And, you know, the, so in other words, the, the, the imagery of the snakes on the Gobekli Tepe stones, you know, and other indications, as I put in the book, um, including uh, this very strange image of, a, of an old woman that was found in one of the, uh, the enclosures there that seems to have a mushroom-shaped head. Mm-hmm. Um, the same mushroom-shaped head, by the way, that's on many of the snakes that seem to have mushroom-shaped heads, seems to suggest that we are dealing with the fact that the Gobekli Tepe people were using psychoactive drugs. So, yes, I mean, what does this do? This, this allows a 
uh, an understanding of not just the deep subconscious, but also uh, cosmic ideas of, um, you know, uh, what they call, you know, ontology or cosmology, um, you know, like, why are we here? Um, you know, what is our connection with the, um, with, 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 with the universe? But I mean, you know, this is at Gebekli Tepe. I don't think it began there. I think that this is something that was going on either by accident or design from the, the very point of foundation of humanity, you know, at least a couple of million years ago. Um, and it's been with us all along, you know, as people like Terence McKenna, you know, have written mm -hmm. in, in, in his in his books, you know, Food of the Gods, the rest of it. Um, that this is something that has carved its way through civilization all the way along. Yeah, I think people tend to focus on when he's in Food of the Gods, visual acuity and stuff like that, which can be explained by other things, cooked food, new hunting techniques. However, anybody that's done psychedelics, there's something profound that happens afterwards where you want to get your life together. You want to do good things. There's almost like a moral aspect to it. It puts things into perspective and your relationship to the universe. Um, I do want to ask you a question though. So after reading your book, it made me ponder things like, um, I've, I've thought about these before, but did we civilize ourselves like some uh, anthropologists and archaeologists suggest? Or do you think it was one of these uh, pre-homo sapien sapien uh, hominids that possibly civilized us or had some kind of back and forth with that? Or what do you, how do you think that, that occurred? Or do you think that even occurred at all? And there's maybe some weirder explanation. Well, I mean, the archaeologists, anthropologists will tell us that Darwin was right and that everything is a steady progress of evolution and morphology that leads to what we have today. Um, and to a degree, that's not wrong, to a degree. But there are a lot of enigmas and mysteries associated with the rise of civilization that have pointed, been pointed out by the likes of Eric von Daniken, um, and even Ignatius Donnelly back mm -hmm. in the 19th century, that there are so many similarities in sim civilizations around the world, you know, that seemingly would have had no contact with each other uh, until, you know, the, the time of contact in the 16th, 17th, 16th century. Um, and that there may well have been some kind of mother civilization involved or a lost civilization um, that existed somewhere on the planet. And of course, the, the obvious candidate for that is Atlantis. Plato's concept of Atlantis, as set down you know, in his dialogues, the Timaeus and Critias. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and obviously, if you're looking towards you know, East Asian uh, culture and civilization, perhaps even the lost continents of Mu or Lemuria, mm -hmm. you know, and that all of these could have seeded us to have given us the rudiments of civilization, you know, particularly after these, these island continents were destroyed in some kind of cataclysm, a cataclysm of the type that's recorded in hundreds, if not thousands of legends around the world. Now, obviously, von Daniken's take was the, to introduce, and obviously he wasn't the first, but he was the most popular, the idea that there may have been some kind of alien intervention. Uh, the aliens may well have come down in their spaceships and, you know, taught us how to construct civilization. So these are the three options that you've had so far. 
the archaeologists and anthropologists say it's a slow progress of evolution, um, the ancient alien idea, or the Atlantis idea. You know, the idea that all of these gave us the rudiments of civilization. Well, I mean, in my earlier book, um, From the Ashes of Angels, which came out in 1996 and was actually written at the same time that Gebekli Tepe was being discovered, so I didn't know anything about it. You know, I talk about the stories of the so-called watchers, the Nephilim, the Anunnaki, mm -hmm. uh, seeding us with the rudiments of civilization. I point this out as having taken place in the areas of southeast Turkey, northern Iraq, you know, western uh, Iran, the traditional area of the Garden of Eden, uh, which was also variously described as paradise and even heaven. Uh, in some texts. And what I say is that very clearly we're dealing with some kind of elite group with credible knowledge that came into the, 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 the midst of these local peoples, you know, and quite literally gave them the rudiments of civilization. And who could they be? Well, I cite the fact that there was a lot of high culture going on in this same area, this cradle of civilization. And so then to find that Gobekli Tepe, you know, is right in the very area that I'm talking about was almost confirmation that almost the smoking gun of this lost civilization, if you like. Uh, that's what I put in, you know, in, my, in the earliest books I wrote about Gobekli Tepe. Um, however, I think that with the knowledge that the Denisovans existed, that we now have an alternative, something that in many ways was being suggested by a lot of the legends to do with the Watchers and the Nephilim as well, because, you know, remember, they are said to be of extreme height, very, very tall individuals, is that all of this is not just a memory of what was going on in the area of Southeast Turkey, but it, it's a conflated view of things that were going on for tens of thousands of years earlier, going back to the time of the Denisovans, who disappeared from Siberia, Mongolia, probably about 40 to 45,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of this is the memory of the knowledge that they gave us. In other words, a lot of what we adopted as the rudiments of civilization came from these earlier forms of hominin, like the Denisovans, like the Neanderthals. Um, and that it's something which we have struggled to understand and to give them the credit for this. And I think that as the years go on, this will be something that we really have to address. That, you know, we were not the first people that did this, that, and the other. A lot of these ideas, for instance, stone tool technologies, um, musical instruments, uh, bone needles, um, uh, jewelry, stuff like this, was being created by people before us like the Denisovans, like the Neanderthals, and that they gave us these rudiments of civilization. And the way that they did this, they didn't just come up and say, here, here you go. We obviously interbred with them. And this legacy was passed on to the descendants of the Denisovans and the Neanderthals. So those descendants end up becoming us. Mm -hmm. That's why we have this knowledge of civilization. That's not to say that we didn't discover stuff on our own. Of course we did. But that some of the most earliest 
inventions did come from these other types of, you know, human members of the so-called homo genus that existed before us. Wow. Absolutely. I don't want to go off too on but I want to ask you a question. Um, so I, Dr. Gregory's part of the book dealt with a lot of like the travel and the back and forth between the, you know, um, North America and the Americas. There's uh, mythology uh, surrounding Easter Island with um, red haired giants that possibly built the Moai. And I know that I've seen depictions of Denisovans where it looks like they have red hair and they're pretty bulky. You think that that's something um, that's been conflated and it's probably um, maybe just misunderstood? Or do you think that there's something to that myth? Well, yeah, I mean, I know these legends and they're true. And uh, some of the earliest explorers to reach um, Easter Island report, as you quite rightly said, encountering uh, canoes. Yeah, Jakob you know, Ragavine, I think, was the first. Yeah. Yeah, one of the with these 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 large oversized individuals with red hair, uh, and of course you have many accounts from North America of similar giants with red hair, um, particularly to do with the Lovelock Cay, for instance, in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was lots of legends about these red-haired giants uh, that lived there that were that were eventually um, you know um, killed by you know, the, the, the Native American tribes, the Paiute tribes that, that came into the area because they saw them as, you know, literally baby-eating cannibals, quite literally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But what I'm getting at is that these, leg- these legends exist. Now, whether they're Denisovans or whether they are a hybrid involving Neanderthals, who almost certainly did have red hair, uh, is a difficult one. We don't know. I mean, the problem is, as I'm sure Greg talked about you know in in his um interview is that we haven't got any dna to test from a skeleton of a giant they mm. existed there were hundreds if not thousands of them um and the smithsonian would have had hundreds of these bones in the past but of course as part of the repatriation of the bones of indigenous peoples at the beginning of the 1990s, all the shells were cleared out from not just the Smithsonian, but institutions and museums all over North America. So there's nothing left. It's empty. It's bare. We can't test anything Mm. to find out whether these giants were, you know, hybrids of Denisovans, Neanderthals and modern humans, and maybe even, you know, other types of hominin we don't even know about. Right. So that's the problem we've got at the moment. And, you know, if anybody out there, you know, knows of such a bone um, and can and, and it can be verified, you know, it has a provenance that, that can be totally accepted you know, within the scientific world, then it will be tested. I mean, there are people out there, archaeologists, scientists who say, you know, give me one of these bones. We will test them. Right. We, will, we will produce a scientific paper that will be published in a proper academic journal. And, you know, and, and we will tell you, you know, who they are, whether they are simply Homo sapiens or whether they do have quite a high ancestry in one of these other types of hominin. So until that happens, everything is speculation. 
but I, I would put money on the table and I've put this in books to suggest that there is a link with the Denisovans here. Hmm. Yeah. And we only have a handful of bones, right. Of Denise events. So it's not like there's a ton no. to go on. It's no. something new. That's kind of evolving. As it, we... You could probably put the whole lot in one hand. Well, certainly in a cupped hand, right. two hands at the moment. Uh, so back to Gobekli Tepe, I want to go now to the vulture stone. So we mentioned the younger Dryas, uh, 12,800, uh, you, you know, years ago. And then you have Gobekli Tepe, uh, which they believe was the dating 9600 BC, which actually aligns with the dating of Plato's uh, Atlantis, oddly enough. Um, when you look at the vulture stone, I know that there's Graham Hancock talks about, uh, you know, the you can see the comment or the comment tail, and then you've got the, uh, uh, the baby vulture or the vulture on there. Um, and then I've heard him suggest too that the handbags above it possibly connected to shamanism and maybe even psychedelics i don't know if he's still thinking that or where he stands on that right now uh but what do you what's your interpretation of the vulture stone well the vulture stone at gobekli tepe which is known as pillar 43 is probably the key to understand in the mindset of the gobekli tepe builders um and it's a, a very pictorial stone that the central image of it is this this big vulture with this with, with wings that almost make a W shape in the way mm -hmm. that they are displayed, um, and there are various other very interesting carvings on it. Quite unlike any of the other stones, uh, there's a scorpion on there. As you say, there's a baby vulture. Um, there is a line of what Graham refers to as um, you know man bags although i don't think they're man bags we call them ancient handbags i mean we've um, talked about it i don't think and you know there is what appears to be like zigzags going right away across of it which seem to possibly be water um, and possibly even a bridge some kind of like stepping stones across these zigzags that imply a bridge or you know a path uh, you know through like maybe a marshy area or something like that mm -hmm. anyway so what does all this mean well there are lots of interpretations of this quite clearly, and it's the time for any researcher to put forward their hypothesis as to what this represents. But of course, with any hypothesis, you know, you have to make predictions as well, so that if new discoveries are made there, then they will either affirm your prediction or nullify it. Um, and some, well, I would say that almost unanimously, other than the archaeologists that work at Gobekli Tepe, but not being funny, but they really haven't got an imagination, mm -hmm. is that the imagery is astronomical in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and this was first suggested by an archaeoastronomer by the name of Juan Belmonte uh, back in about 2010. Um, and he looked at the, the scorpion um, and concluded that this was a representation of Scorpio. Uh, he gave his argument. He showed that the Scorpio, uh, the Scorpion, you know, eventually became the constellation of Scorpius in Sumerian and later Babylonian, um, you know, astronomy, and that therefore it could have existed at Gobekli Tepe. Um, and then a Armenian team uh, looked at the stone, looked at the vulture, and concluded that the vulture was a representation of the stars 
of the constellation of Cygnus, mm -hmm. the celestial bird, uh, usually a swan in Europe and most parts of Asia. But interestingly enough, in Armenia, which is obviously where these scholars work come from, the, the constellation of Cygnus is a vulture. Um, and of course, in the past, Armenia extended into southeast Turkey and was actually, um, you know, covered the area of Gebekli Tepe around Shanlurfa, which is, the, you know, the modern city of Shanlurfa, the ancient city of Urfa or Edessa, mm -hmm. which is where Gebekli Tepe is. Um, and so what they said and proposed is that this is Cygnus. So here you have two constellations together. Now, my colleague Rodney Hale, who's been working in the field of archaeoastronomy, noticed that some of the, um, the carvings, you know, that let's say were astronomical, were on the head of the stone, and that there was a very deliberate cutoff beneath these before other images on the stem of the stone began. So what he worked out is that this cutoff line was the local horizon. Um, and that above the wing of the vulture is a circle, like a filled-in circle. Mm -hmm. That filled-in circle in prehistoric carving symbolism in Anatolia represents an abstract human head. Um, there are references to this. There's good work that's been done into this. Mm -hmm. And the human head is the symbol of the soul in this tradition. I mean, the idea of removing the cranium and using it as a point of contact right. for the ancestors is something that goes back to the time of Quebec and Tepe. Um, was found at the site of Jericho, for instance, various decorated skulls that had plaster and carry shells for eyes. Yeah, I think you like mentioned this. that in the book. So, um, so this, this, this object, this circular object above the wing of this um, vulture may well represent a soul. And down below on the stem is a figure that hasn't got a head. And this seems to be directly beneath this abstract image of a head associated with the vulture. Mm. So basically what my colleague Rodney Hale, the engineer, worked out was that that line from the circle down to the head represented the zenith, the, the, the line from north that goes right over the head, and that with the horizon, he was able to synchronize everything perfectly and showed that Juan, Mel, Mel, Juan Belmonte was correct, that yes, this is Scorpius, that yes, it is Cygnus, and what that circle also represents is the northern celestial pole around which all of the stars turn. Um, and this was seen by many ancient cultures, particularly shamanic cultures in Siberia, as the point of entry into the sky world or afterlife. Um, and in fact, it was known as the hole in the sky through mm. which the souls reach the afterlife. This is what, in my opinion, is being shown on the vulture stone. Basically, it's a map to the sky world. Mm. Now, as I said, I know that various of my colleagues have other interpretations, and that's fine. You know, 
you have to look, as I said, at hypothesis in terms of predictions. So I predicted that there was um, you know, a connection between Cygnus and the alignment of the different stone enclosures. In my book, um, The Cygnus Mystery, which came out in 2006, and at that time, and when I was there in 2004, they'd not even discovered the vulture stone. Right. So to find out that this map to the sky world possibly shows how you get to Cygnus and from Cygnus through the hole in the sky into the afterlife was confirmation of my prediction that Cygnus was very important to these people at Gobekli Tepe 9600 BC. But what I also showed in that book is that all the way around the world, from the Native American mound complexes to the Maya in uh, Central America, to the Incas in Peru, um, to the megalithic culture of Britain and many other places as well, that Cygnus in particular was seen as a point of entry and exit to the sky world. Why? Because it forms at the exact position where the Milky Way is seen to bifurcate or split in two mm. through something known as the Cygnus Rift or the Dark Rift, which is this line of debris that goes mm -hmm. along the center of the Milky Way and begins right where the bright star of Deneb, the brightest star in the constellation of Cygnus, is to be found. And these ideas, for instance, are in Native American tradition. As many as 30 to 40 different tribes all see Cygnus as the point of entry into the sky world. But it's balanced with another constellation that's important to them, which is Orion. Orion was the step-off constellation onto the Milky Way for these people. And from there, the soul would journey along the Milky Way, which was known as the Path of Souls, which is the reason why Greg wrote the book of the same title. Mm -hmm. And when the soul reached the point of bifurcation of the Milky Way, this is where it would encounter a adjudicator of the soul that was often seen in the form of a bird-headed individual. And this bird-headed individual is unquestionably a symbolic representation of the stars of Cygnus, uh, in particular the bright star Deneb. And this would have acted as the adjudicator, the judge, um, allowing the soul either to enter from here into the afterlife or be sent down into reincarnation or to be cast into oblivion uh, if it was seen to be a bad soul. Mm. No, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> Great explanation there. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask you a question regarding um, you were kicked out of Gobekli Tepe. You were kicked out of Turkey. I saw you. I follow you on Facebook. I saw that you posted that a little while back. Um, and I, I didn't really look into the explanation. Can you just give us a little bit of an explanation of how that went down and um, why it well, went down? Yeah, I mean, I was I was at Gobekli Tepe in 2018 with uh, quite a large tour group. Um, and I told the site manager and lead archaeologist, Dr. Lee Clare, that we were coming along uh, in the hope that he would come out and shake hands and say hi and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe just give us a little update on what was, what was happening there. I'd had previous communication with him. I didn't think there was a problem. 
Um, but when we got there, um, it, I, well, firstly, I didn't hear back from him. But when we got there, it was very clear that there were security guards all over the place just waiting to pounce on our tour group. Um, and they were hounded from the moment they got there. And I realized it was being coordinated by this particular person. And I heard his voice and it was English. And I thought, that's Lee, Lee Clare. So I went up to him, you know, to basically say, look, it's Andrew Collins, you know, to shake his hand. I've not met him before. Mm -hmm. And he recoiled backwards away from me, would not shake my hand mm -hmm. and said, we don't want your lies and pseudoscience here. Oh. Get out, get out, get out yeah. now. Wow. And he twice told me to leave Gebekli Tepe. And I afterwards found that the, um, that the, the tourist police had been informed that we were coming and it was, if there was going to be any problem that I would be arrested. Um, and that would have meant a minimum of, um, uh, I think three days in, in jail wow. and it would have meant a lot of money getting out. And you don't want to um, go to a I, Turkish jail. No, you don't No. <laughs> um, and I then also found that I'm on a blacklist of sites in Turkey. Um, now who created this for what reason? I don't know. Um, so basically I was effectively banned from Gebekli Tepe, mm. uh, at that point. Um, but then things were compounded last year when my book from the ashes of angels, which looks into the origins of the peoples in Eastern Turkey, the Kurds, um, and looks at their, um, their religion, their culture, uh, their identity, and, and, you know, suggests that they are the uh the descendants of neolithic peoples who may well have been associated with the different monuments in that area and that their beliefs and religion seem to reflect this um unfortunately the book uh was given to a prisoner and i use that term lightly in a jail in turkey um and the warder took it away and said what is this notice that kurdistan was mentioned in it um, and it was then brought to trial and the book was deemed um, to support terrorism and was banned in Turkey. Mm. Uh, all copies were destroyed and um, I'm obviously now persona non grata in mm. Turkey. You, so you don't think that the whole Gobekli Tepe thing, maybe somebody got in somebody else's ear politically about it and let's... I, I don't think, I think... Not to be conspiratorial honestly, about I, it, but... I, I get the feeling that, that Lee Clare had seen me on television a number of occasions talking about Gebekli Tepe and hated it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on, place, on things like Ancient Aliens uh, and various other programs as well. And I think that he and his people are incredibly possessive of the site. Uh, and that anybody that writes books about it, appears on television seemingly as a spokesman for, uh, you know, the, the site is hated. Um, and unfortunately, wow. you know, the, the, the leading person in that position is me. So, You've been a huge uh, advocate too. I don't know why. I mean, it's not like you're, I mean, I haven't seen anything. Obviously, Ancient Aliens will always, I'm a huge fan of the show, but they twist it obviously towards the agenda of the show when you're just more interested in the ancient civilization side of it. Mm -hmm. um, however, um, 
Yeah, I just think that that's crazy. And, and there's other people that have written books about the archaeoastronomy um, factor dealing with Gobekli Tepe, but you were the first. Now there's been a few books written since that, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, whatever, I'm not going to get into that, but you were the first person to kind of point these things out. And now some people have take that, taken that and, and ran with it. Um, I do want to ask you one question, though, before we pivot. Do we still have a few minutes here? Is that, is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, I've seen, you know, the Urfa man, the statue. Um, if you look at that compared to some of the statues from the Naragi people, um, the Sardinia, some of the Maltese stuff, some of the uh, sli- uh, cycladic or cycladic civilization stuff, they look similar. They look very similar. So do you think that Gobekli Tepe was obviously the origin point uh, of that, and then it kind of spread out into uh, the Greek islands and the Italian islands and that kind of a thing? Or what do you think was happening there? No, I, th- I think you've probably summed it up pretty well there. Uh, I mean, Gobekli Tepe uh, closed around 8,000 BC. I mean, as the centuries went on, the enclosures that they were building were getting smaller and smaller. I mean, until eventually they are the size of a, you know, of a, of a bathroom with like benches around and tiny little stones. You know, they were still going through the motions of creating them, but they, it's almost like they'd lost the impetus for doing it. Plus the orientation started to change instead of them very clearly being um, focused upon the, the Northern sky, which seems to be, you know, very obvious from the axis of the, the, the tall stones and the fact that they've got these, these um, what they call porthole stones in mm-hmm. the north northwest in at least three or four of the, of, of the enclosures, which are like these, these megalithic stones with holes in them, just large enough to get the head through. Right. Um, the reason for that is very specific. is because if a soul has to go, you know, from here to there, it, it, it doesn't have a whole body. It's just the head. Remember, right. the head is the symbol of the soul. That's why the holes are only the size of a head. So they are perfectly aligned to the setting of the star Deneb in the constellation of Cygnus for the time frame of the construction of each of the enclosures based upon the carbon-14 dating evidence of each one. Now, um, so in other words, you, you've got all this. Um, but eventually the orientations start to go more east-west and they're very clearly focusing on the rising of the sun at the time of the equinoxes and solstices. Why would you change the orientation? The answer is, is that these people are now not so much worried about comets coming into the sky. Mm-hmm. They're much more worried about harvests and about growing crops because now the agricultural revolution has hit the area around Gobekli Tepe. In fact, it almost certainly started in the area of Gobekli Tepe. Something like 68 strains of modern wheat can all be traced back to a mountain that's within sight of Gobekli Tepe. Hmm. So, you know, that I think is, is significant in itself. And so they're more interested in the sun rising each, you know, and, and obviously the winters and the, the, the spring returning and the summer and the harvest, etc., etc. So they're not interested in stars anymore. Um, and then eventually, I think that the impetus to build those enclosures just ended um, and they closed up shop. 
they started moving off into other parts of the ancient world. They, they, they moved to westwards into places like Chatelhoyak in southern central Anatolia, Shiklihoyak, mm-hmm. which is to the north of that, Hashila, uh, which is also a big site in western um, Turkey, and, and various other sites that you don't even get to hear about. Right. And then they went into the Aegean, into Crete, some of the oldest um, monuments at Crete, you know, Neolithic, go back at least 10,000 years, uh, and possibly may even have pillars that, that date back to that period, right in the basement of, um, you know, some of these, these the, the palaces of Knossos and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, clearly, they are in Greece, uh, and they're moving through Europe, through Italy, through towards Britain, um, mm-hmm. and obviously up into Scandinavia as well. Um, now, not all these people are the same culture. I mean, th- there's a lot of movement going on here. But obviously what gradually starts happening is that they start creating megalithic monuments. Um, slightly different to those at Gebetli Tepe. Now, very few of them have got carvings. Only those uh, places like Malta mm-hmm. of carvings. Um, and then eventually, obviously, you have the cultures uh, in the Boyne Volley valley in ireland and scotland and orkneys and whatever all of these are interrelated in a much bigger picture there's more than one culture involved but there's relationships with all of them so you know the styles that they're using to create statues is something that has existed since the time of gabetli tepe so when it crops up with the neurology cultures in sardinia for instance Mm -hmm. you know this is an echo of what has gone earlier with Gebekli Tepe. It's not a direct lineal descendant. It's an echo of these earlier styles that have existed in, you know, obviously Eastern Europe and Asia Minor. Sure. We really appreciate everybody listening. Again, please go check out Andrew Collins' website at andrewcollins.com. Also buy his books at amazon.com. I have both of those links down below. And if you want to keep listening to this conversation, which we did extend for another 10 to 15 minutes, head on over to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive content and interviews like the movie I'm about to upload. So again, we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for checking us out.